This podcast is brought to you by Stonely, an interactive guidance platform for self-serve support. Deflect tickets, decrease costs, and delight customers with beautiful step-by-step guides that can be embedded anywhere. Hey everyone, welcome back to Beyond the Queue. I'm your host, Meredith Metzger, and this week I'm excited to welcome Tony Wan, Head of Customer Experience at TruePlay Games. In this episode, I talk with Tony about what he thinks support leaders get wrong about agent training and how to fix it. He shares his best tips and tricks for how to set actionable goals and KPIs, how to teach for actual learning instead of teaching to a test, and how to better involve your agents in the creation of training materials. Hey everyone, welcome back to Beyond the Queue. Today I am excited to welcome Tony Wan. He is the Head of Customer Experience at True Play Games. Tony, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Meredith. So um, you've had a really cool career in customer support and experience, uh, particularly in the video game industry. And I saw that you've even designed some games, you've done like music composition for them. Um, so you are a man of many talents. Um, it's uh, really nice of you to say. Uh, at, at startups, you kind of don't have a choice. You just have to do what needs to be done. And, and that was me kind of cutting my teeth on a few fun and new things uh, back in the day. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So today I want to talk to you about um, an important topic for all support leaders and one that I know you have dealt with, and that is agent training. So I know you've said before that the training concept is broken in many customer service organizations. So let's dig into that a little bit. Uh, To get us started, can you just tell me what you mean when you say that agent training is broken? Sure. Um, I think kind of at the the core of of all of that is, you know, one of the the pieces of evidence you can clearly see is the the whole bias towards training for testing versus what I would call training for learning, right? And um, I think you know that that's really at at the heart of it. Um, a lot of people are getting into classrooms and taking modules or whatever, but it's all to pass some kind of quiz or a test. In my view, it doesn't really quite get at the heart of continuous adult learning, which is a a very different thing. Okay. So in your experience, like what have you seen support leaders getting wrong about Mm this? Um, There's a couple of different ways it expresses itself. Um, Fundamentally, I think that um, there are, it's probably mostly reducing the complexity of learning to testing because it's it's easier to do. I mean, it's let's just face it, it's much easier to teach people to a test because you have all of these ways to kind of get some numbers on the board, right? The deeper part of it that concerns me is that it might not be an, a conscious thing, but I think a lot of people aren't thinking very deeply about really caring about the learning process or just about people learning. And so you see it in things like, um, like for example, like agents usually aren't included in, in generating any of the training materials that they have or the knowledge that they work with. They usually don't get to regularly interact with that knowledge. It's um, usually done by a separate group of people. You see that there is almost zero evidence in most operations I've seen for the long-term evaluation or, you know, looking um, in, in training terms like the Kirkpatrick level three and level four sorts of evaluations. And I think you see it in little ways too, where people um, tend to miss out on thinking about how they're going to integrate uh, practical concepts like tribal knowledge or trying to understand how people are working around your current rules and your current systems. Because Let's face it, if you know we were running any kind of customer support operation, most likely your agents start have workarounds for what you've built, and it's like, well, what are those workarounds like why do they feel like they have to do that? Um, you know you don't really see a lot of investigation into looking at how to incorporate those things most of the time it's just like, oh, don't have you know tribal knowledge or don't use those additional resources. It's like, okay, we understand, but there are practical problems 
around knowledge and understanding that those things are solving for that your current offerings don't. So, you know, taking a look at that, I, I don't usually see that either. Okay. So what do you think support leaders and agents too, what are they missing? Like, what are they missing out on when support orgs approach training this way? I think they're missing out on a lot of really practical pieces of knowledge that would help everyone do their jobs better. I mean, it just, I would say the overall outcome that you're missing um, is a, a much improved work environment um, around learning on the job, around feeling like you're equipped to, to do your job properly, um, in feeling like you're working to make work a better place and that the systems are all changing according to reality versus feeling like you're running up against a bunch of walls all the time at work. And so that, you know, all of that connects into things like agent satisfaction, attrition, you know, how happy people are at work. And, and at the end of the day, a lot of those things do plug into um, a better customer experience uh, for people who are on, you know, the receiving end for the interactions that the agents have to participate in, right? So, yeah, and that's the end goal, right? <laughs> absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So, with that in mind, why, why do you think that support leaders are or kind of have been getting this concept of agent training wrong? Is it just that we're still learning what? what makes a good learning environment? So I know in school growing up, I had to learn to attest often. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I, I, I think that is, um, is spot on. I think there have been pockets of people um, in education who have been kind of going on about kind of the educational model and all of these really important topics for learning at, at any age. Um, at the root of the the problem in our typical work context, though, I would say that th that's certainly part of it, um, that like clinging on to old models that maybe were really good for one thing, but, you know, blanket applying them to other things. So, you know, at the root, I would say it's it's an old problem we have in business and in business processes that like it it takes a lot of times it borrows from manufacturing and takes like very simple mechanical principles and then tries to incorrectly apply them, I would say, to complex human behavior. So you have something that's a very step-by-step -step process and yet you put this here and you screw this in and, you know, make sure that it functions properly and on to the next stage. But human behavior isn't like that. <laughs> we all know like at all, right? So um, so the way it ends up working out at most companies is I, I think a lot of times you get very rigid best practices in, in customer experience and customer service. And um, these are kind of blindly applied to every human being in your organization, you know, despite the very clear fact that if you have a conversation with somebody, like we all acknowledge, oh yeah, you know, um, and if you think about, if you have children, like think about your own children, like, oh yeah, you know, like, yeah, everyone's different. People learn differently. We need personal attention, right? Like we talk about all these things, but then like, even if you think about customer service context, it's like, oh yeah, you need to personalize, you know, your responses with mm -hmm. other people because they're people. But then when it comes to them in the internal context <laughs> of training, it's like, no, we don't need to personalize anything to you. <laughs> you know, it's just, you're just cogging machine. Like that's how people end up feeling, right? So you, you get, mm -hmm. um, you know, that. I know we've had conversations before where I'll mention the word kind of this. It's unintentional, I think, many times, but it is a kind of a dehumanization, right? Agents aren't people anymore. They're not individuals anymore with individual needs um, and different ways of learning. And, uh, you know, I think kind of together with, with, with what I was sharing, there's sort of the application of um, incorrect methods, depending on the context, right? So... You know, something very typical might be, oh, we're going to solve this problem we have with a 15-minute training or one-hour training, and we're just going to deploy it to 50,000 people globally who, you know, are in all these different countries and have all these different contexts, and it's going to fundamentally change the way they think about X, right? And it's like, wow, like, if that really worked, you should seriously quit your job and, like, go create world <laughs> peace because, like that that's a better use of that kind of a skill, right? Um, but we all know that it, it actually doesn't work. And so, 
you know, we see the problems there. And then I think another reason that we tend to get this wrong as a community is the KPI culture, right? Sometimes the KPIs are aimed in the wrong direction and they're incorrectly, you know, applied. So in in a very specific training context, a lot of times I've seen kind of test completion, you know, pass fail percentages be like the benchmark. And I'm like, well, that's, that's really limiting, right? Um, Or like a, a survey result, like, oh, did you like the training, right? And that's, that's not deep enough to kind of get at if we're really interested in, in whether or not our agents are going to, you know, learn um, new things and change behaviors, um, which is a lot of what people are looking for, you know, over time when it comes to interacting with their customers. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, especially when you said we want to offer a personalized experience to our customers. So why wouldn't we model that internally? <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. So now kind of on to the, the actionable part here. So how can support leaders fix the agent training process? It's really tough. And I think, you know, it's not a, there's no silver bullet to it, but I think there's a, a couple of general tips that I would give. And, and I would say maybe about just, you know, four for this conversation. Uh, so one, I would say, you should state very clearly up front whenever you're tempted to use training as a tool to solve a problem, what your Kirkpatrick level threes and fours um, are going to be. Like, what are those goals that you have for this training initiative? Because then those are going to force you to hopefully have longer term or to, to devote resources to longer term, you know, observation. Um, so, you know, Kirkpatrick three and four is really looking at not just how do they feel about the training um, or how do they test to it, but what are uh, what are the changed behaviors you see after um, your training initiative is complete and what are the results of those things, right? So and a lot of places don't devote resources towards that. They just kind of stop at the level two. They do a typical assessment and nobody is checking for, hey, like three months down the line, are you using that new tool? Are you using that new process? Um, does it make sense to you? Is it like second nature to you? The different approach that we shared with you in terms of how to talk to this kind of customer or how to diffuse a situation, like how how is that going? Is it is it just kind of part of your fabric now or is it is it something that you just forgot and you dumped off and like whatever and you're still kind of continuing, you know, in, in your, your previous habits? Um, you know, devoting resources towards consistent I would say long-term, you know, observation and coaching and really taking more of a long-term view of learning. The second thing I would say is looking at, you know, we, we were talking about how people learn um, differently. And so not just designing like one training for one thing, but even if you have like one topic, designing like a number of different kinds of training and different ways to practice, I would say, which is a component that I feel is, is missing a lot of. So you know, typically I'll see a lot of trainers, like they'll do a classroom training and they'll be, you know, talking at the agents quite a bit and then there'll be a test or something like that. But what I've challenged a lot of professionals to do, and they know this already, it's not like they don't, but to, you know, try a couple of different approaches, different types of material, but also just um, trying, you know, to flip the classroom every once in a while and to have, you know, much shorter um, lecture sessions and have people actually go do like yes. go practice what it is that you're trying to you know skills that you're trying to build up and really focus in on those for you know a period of time until you know a new behavior or new practice becomes second nature to you right so a lot more pra- uh, practical parts of of training and participation and engagement versus just kind of sitting around like you're back in high school <laughs> like listening to your your teacher kind of drone on right um yeah so for sure, like stuff like that, you know, think about like, hey, self-service learning paths and programs and all these different ways in which you can supply um, both material and just different ways of learning to your your people. Um, third, I would say kind of in connection to what we had before, like why people get it wrong. Like if you can examine your KPIs and if you have bad ones, like get rid of them, right? A lot of times people are trying to look for, I would say, like illegitimate 
ROI on training. So if you, you know, from a trainer's perspective, they're like, well, I have to, you know, my boss is pressuring me maybe to prove the value of, you know, what it is I'm doing. And sometimes they kind of flatly grab for a KPI that isn't very helpful or might just make them look good. Like test completion is really easy, right? Because it's like, oh, look, like everyone took this test, everyone passed it, you know, I did my job. Or sometimes people try to reach even further in an illegitimate way. They haven't built out the data connections between the how they design their training initiative and what result they're trying to improve. So let's say, you know, you're trying to improve CSAT or NPS or CES or productivity or whatever it is, whatever, you know, KPI you're trying to move. And they didn't spend the time really proving out like their, their thesis. And they just kind of illegitimately sort of like grab for for KPIs and that confuses, confuses things as well. And you have people trying to claim credit for, you know, maybe something, someone in operations did something or maybe it has nothing to do with anybody and everyone's just really happy that a new product came out. And so they're sending you all these like glowing reviews, right? <laughs> it has nothing to do with like the training initiative or anything, but you know, you'll see that, you'll see like bad KPIs, you know, drive, you know, poor behaviors at work because that's how you're measuring people's success. Um, and then fourth, I would say like, don't don't create training in isolation. It's really, really tempting. And a lot of people like, you know, have training as like this completely separate thing. But more than that, it's it's not just that they're typically like organized separately from, you know, operations, but also I would say that they don't typically consider all of the systems that are operative in, in your operation today, right? That curb behavior. And so um, I would say like, Trainers really have to, um, I would say, be empowered to to have the resources and the time to understand what all of these different systems that are affecting agent behavior are. Because if you put any kind of, you know, bonus or malice system in place, like it's going to curb people's behavior. So what are all your, your policies, your procedures, your processes? Because those those things that get you rewarded or get you punished at the end of the day are going to speak like so much more loudly than, uh, you know, a nice um, training program, even if it's very well put together because, you know, the agent from the agent's perspective is like, that's all nice and well, but at the end of the day, like, this is how you evaluate me. Right. And it gets back to that very like understandably, you know, primary thing. It's like, well, if it is, this is what you're measuring me on. This is the kind of behavior you're going to get. And I think, um, you know, training needs to take a look at that and, and have a voice at the table when it comes to making those kind of decisions. You know, someone should be like, hey, doesn't matter what we do here, because as long as you have this policy that penalizes them for, you know, doing this, like everyone's going to be super nervous about spending that extra minute, even if it's just a minute to carefully, you know, listen to the customer's problems or whatever it may be, right? Okay. So I'm curious, what what are some policies that, in your opinion, would work better as far as measuring the success of training? You should look very carefully, kind of going back to the, the behavioral piece, um, and not being so tied up to something quantifiable in some cases, right? Um, it's very, very hard in especially the larger your teams get to um to be able to pull out like what is affecting what at any one time you know to isolate like efforts and what it actually does to the organization so i would say like be be less about those particular numbers and be more about positive behaviors uh, that you want to see exhibited in your teams, right? And 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 those uh, and those kinds of points. Like if if you look at, for example, some of the places where people say they receive the best customer experience, a lot of them typically have. Um, it's not that they don't look at the numbers, but there's m much less emphasis on the numbers and much more an emphasis on, you know, big ideas. This is how we would like you to treat our customers. 
this is how we want our customers to feel as they interact with you. So instead of aiming for a certain number, they might ask you like a like a call handling number or something like that. Like, oh, you must you know, and you know, resolve all of your calls in in 15 minutes or whatever. They, they'll say things like, "Did you do everything that you could to to make life easier for your for the customer?" Right. Um, so it's it's much more about these overarching ideas that will like pull people's behaviors towards. Um, in general, more positive um, customer outcomes. Okay. So for support leaders who are maybe in the early stages of kind of adapting the way that agent training is done and viewed, how can they go about kind of tying those different policies to the bottom line? Because I'm assuming they still have to report out, they still have to convince, you know, the C-suite that this is, that the new agent training is effective, so I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. There's a lot of data to sift through to get to those kinds of answers. In general, it's it's one of the tips that I like to um, kind of drill into my younger colleagues um, in the organization. Really working with your data teams to find out what is the legitimate connection between the output of your customer service team's performance and like customer outcomes, right? So in some cases, you're looking for loyal customers, for example. And because you have loyal customers, they they have repeat business, right? And then what is what specifically is the effect of a great customer experience and service recovery from a bad experience with your company, et cetera, worth to, to the business, right? So there's a lot of um, specific... Uh, data and and math that people will have to crunch to, but you want to be looking for those explicit connections between, like, what's happening with your customers in your company's ecosystem, what happens when they experience um, a service failure or product failure, um, what happens when they because usually right after that they hit your teams right what happens when they hit your teams. And then depending on whether that's a great experience or whether that's a poor experience and specifically for what types of problems, um, what then is the effect on, you know, let's say um, retention for a customer, spend for a customer. And and these are all different depending on the different contexts. But you want to find those connections to the bottom line. And so when you're looking at training and you're saying something like, we have done a lot of study. We know these sets of behaviors really help to, on average, you know, improve uh, customer um, outcomes, whether that's CES, NPS, whatever it is that you're using, and that these uh, have a positive effect on these numbers over here that are important to the business, right? So really understanding the entire customer journey with your company, um, not just from a very narrow like, oh, this is the customer service experience and we got a survey and that's it. But no, 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 no. Like what what was their experience before they got to you? And what was their experience afterwards? And what is their continuing experience hopefully with your company? And I would say that that those numbers are really important to to find and to work out. And so when you think about, let's say if you're a trainer you think about you know some of those attitude or behavioral changes that you you want to make you can find legitimate connections and it might not always be again super direct and there might be a bunch of other things you know it's best to be honest about that but i think if you do kind of evaluations at all the levels of kirkpatrick and you can make that business connection that provides a very at least robust picture that you're trying to pay attention to, you know, learning in the organization and how that's helping and and what's happening as a result of those things. You know, you might not be able to to have many times like a one for one, but you can say um, that, you know, if you have all of those pieces of information, you can tell a story about the overall kind of general positive effects, right? And you can look at, you know, even additional things like uh, like attrition, people who who are intrinsically motivated and have that kind of feeling within them satisfied. A huge part of that is like mastery or, you know, like continuous learning. Um, they'll be more satisfied. Uh, you'll have less turnover. 
Um, and we all know turnovers are very expensive for many reasons. So understanding like how to calculate all of those costs in an operation as well, because it's not it's not immediately obvious in many cases that high turnover rates in call centers are expensive, you know, to the company because a lot of people don't look at um, don't really spend the time calculating like oh, the loss of all the tribal knowledge for someone who's been here for two years and, you know, oh, you have to retrain somebody and, oh, all the lead time for hiring a new person and then you have to ramp them up and then all this other stuff. And a lot of people aren't used to, like, calculating those. And so I would think, uh, in addition to what was already shared, like, looking at those as well to make sure that you're um, kind of proving your point and, and helping um, training be uh, much more functional and practical to the org. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I wanted to go back to point number two. You were talking about adjusting teaching methods and adjusting the training methods to kind of account for people's different learning types, which I love that especially because I I have ADHD, so I definitely learn differently from um, other maybe more neurotypical people. So I'm I'm curious, what are some some ways and some methods that support leaders can adjust their their training style. Something I like to do is you hire hire people who don't who aren't from the specific context that you're in. A good example of this is, you know, I've had friends and I've hired myself some somebody who has a PhD in clinical psychology for example, or you're a hire like a behavioral economist who has worked in like I don't know, hospitality, but like, you know, I'm working in banking right now, right? Like they have a completely different context, but they have a very helpful and like deep uh, skill set, like expertise. And because they're not, they're not constrained by the typical best practices in the industry that we're in, they have no problem asking the question, like, why would you do it this way, right? Or like, you know, how about we try something new? Or um, that doesn't seem right to me. Or, you know, they're, they don't have the baggage of sort of like, oh, I've been doing this for 20 years and this is the way that we always do it. And, you know, I'm, I've given so many speeches and, and I've, I've talked to, I've, I've been a guest on Meredith's show and, you know, <laughs> like all this other stuff, like they don't have that baggage, uh, you know, and, and sometimes frankly, like that ego, right. To, to, they feel like a little out of place. They're like, um, you know, maybe they feel like they have some imposter syndrome. Cause like, I've never really done this before. I have this other expertise, but so, I mean, I think those kind of slightly unorthodox hires or people who have, sort of very useful deep skills in adjacent areas that you think would would help out, right? Um, that's one. The second would be uh, what I would say is kind of from a practical example, usually training many times is built top down. Some executive gets angry about something or a client gets angry about something. They want something fixed and then the training team gets put together and then they start building this thing and then they deploy it, right? Something that uh, I've done quite a bit in the past and encouraged a lot of my teammates to do is like, well, hey, hold on a second. You have a need, you have an idea. Why don't you get a bunch of people from the operations, the agents themselves, and instead of just this top-down thing, you you do bottom-up as well and you meet in the middle, right? And so you have the strategic concerns um, and the business concerns that are coming from various people, but then you also have the very valuable information of the agents, the, the population that you're aiming to like actually convince that like, hey, this is a good thing to do or this is a new practice that you should adopt um, and having them be part of the creative process for training to say, no, that won't work or that idea sounds somewhere. We actually do it this way and this is why we do it this way. And they're like, oh, I never thought of that before, right? And so they're the ones actually doing the work and they have so much valuable information to offer up to trainers and, you know, curriculum designers and instructional designers, whoever's building the material that I think a lot of people would do well to consider. Um, and then there's also just the, the practical nitty gritty stuff where you're like, hey, like, don't just think of classroom training, right? Think of like what 
what is the age group of the people that you're trying to train? Cool. Like, how do they best consume? Like, when they want to learn themselves, like, where do they go? Oh, they go to YouTube. It's like, cool. Like, why don't we do some YouTube videos, right? Like, there's all of these um, different types of uh, media and different ways of communicating in which training teams can take uh, better advantage of than, let's say, kind of the historic um, historic tendencies of, of the discipline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I know for me, like the hour long lecture in a lecture hall from, you know, college 100 level classes didn't work as well as <laughs> the more like step by step hands on, like I learn a concept, I go apply it. I learn the next concept, I go apply it. That definitely works better for me. <laughs> right, right. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And your your comment about uh, making sure that it's training is both top down and bottom up. It kind of reminds me of point number four, where you said that all the right people have to be in the room. You can't just make this training in a vacuum. Yeah. 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 That, that, that's absolutely correct. I mean, it, it's, it's really vital because, you know, we're talking about, um, we're talking about people, right? And I mean, in the same way that it's so funny because like, we're in customer service, right? So it's like, oh, you know, hey, have a conversation with the customer. Ask them for their opinion. We're going to take all of your feedback and, you know, make our company better. And, like, we don't we don't want to do that, like, internally, like, for each <laughs> other, right? It's so weird to me. It's like, wait, just wait a minute. Like, these people are valuable. Like, they, they, they talk to customers all day long, like, day in and day out. Like, we should probably talk to them, right? So, Yeah, that's probably cool. a better way to get buy-in. Yeah, yeah. It's just funny to me that, that like, there's so little of that sometimes. And it's really, like, it's it's on the verge of, like, comical, right? Like, I can't, like, I laugh, I laugh in self-defense because it's, like, too sad otherwise. <laughs> it's, like, one of those things where it's funny, but it's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm curious, how have you, how have you improved agent training within your teams? Like, can you give me some, some real-world examples and success stories? Uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, coming from, from gaming specifically, I kind of just borrowed a lot of ideas from the, the general industry. I would say, um, one of them, for example, would be kind of the idea of user generated content in gaming. So kind of, we were just talking about this, right? Instead of just top down, it's bottom up. So like a lot of times, um, your agents can create some of the best practical short trainings um, that other people find useful. If we think about the concept, for example, of like tribal knowledge and, you know, you could ask anyone on the floor, like, dude, if you had a problem, like who would you talk to on the floor, you know, about this? They'd be like, oh, you know, like Samantha over there, she knows everything about that. Everyone goes to Samantha. That's if you have that tech problem, she's the one who helps you. And um, a lot of times people will be like, oh, well, you know, what's Samantha doing? But it's not just about like what Samantha is doing. It's like, no, 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 no. Like just get Samantha to create some stuff because yeah. she probably already has it in a folder and it's like sick and tired <laughs> of like telling people the same thing. So she's like, yeah, just, just read this document. Um, so kind of that, you know, borrowing that concept of, you know, user generated um, content and really trying to find practical, fast ways of involving your agents in uh, the creation of training or just simple knowledge materials and, uh, you know, not, you know, outlawing that or making people like, you know, uh, hide it from you or or whatever. The other one I would say is, um, and, and, and so, you know, how that, how that ends up being expressed in practical terms is some people use, you know, KCS uh, methodology, having software that supports that methodology in real time is really, really important. So if you can have, um, if you can build or find a, a KB out there that helps you, helps your agents and empowers them to um, contribute and, and change information and add their knowledge to the knowledge base as quickly as possible, um, that's really cool. And if you can make sure that they're also involved, if some of them are just happen to be like really good practical trainers, which a lot of them probably are, like just empowering them to, you know, give trainings to to their teammates. So 
maybe there's a, a couple of seniors on your team and maybe you have some kind of a program where you can get certified um, and be like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm a certified senior agent for these issues. Like, I could, you know, you're on my team. I could totally teach you about that. Just ping me, right? Like, not a problem. Um, instead of like having to like register for a course or, you know, wait till three weeks or whatever when the training initiative is coming out. Um, or like search like this ridiculously large database where like everything's very sterile and like difficult to find and the knowledge might be outdated or whatever. The other one I would say is uh, kind of borrowing from the, 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 kind of long together with that, the peer-to-peer -peer concept. So you have those kind of tools, you have kind of an involving people in generating the training, but I would say also training each other, like sharing knowledge and information and helping each other out on the job is a very, it's like not so natural to any workplace, right? Um, so instead of like kind of poo-pooing on that natural function, finding ways to integrate it into how your teams actually function. You know, so if you have a team of 15, for example, like how can you help people understand um, how to get help from each other and incorporate that tribal knowledge into a much faster way for people to ramp up and learn on the job versus always having to go through something that's super structured? you know, where you have to register and all this stuff. It's like, no, you have X number of teammates designated to this stuff and they can help each other, right? And it's just this natural function. How are you going to, you know, capture that kind of training and learning? Because then, yeah, the question changes, right? It's like, not how do you stop that? It's like, well, how do you facilitate it? And then how do you like capture that data so that you can get a better understanding of, of what's actually happening between those people? Because there's all these little small ways in which we learn from each other constantly as we're working together. And, um, you know, that that's often kind of disregarded or not well understood. Um, and I think uh, teams like suffer for it because they go, oh, training other people is not my job. And, you know, it, it's really easy just to kind of like brush it away when it's like, no, Instead of waiting for that course that's a week later or never finding it, it's like, no, you could just ask Jim and, and, and Jim will take five minutes out and just show you what's up and then, you know, help like assign the next 10 of those interactions to you and then check up with you again afterwards, right? Like there's just all of these interesting, um, more casual ways and organic ways of learning that I think um, is, is possible. So it's less of less of a, like a strict process and more of a how do you how do you help encourage the natural processes that happen because those are the the most useful and practical right <laughs> right <laughs> yeah yeah i suppose that probably kind of ties in with point number 3 you made earlier about you know not being like overly reliant on KPIs or not using the wrong KPIs if people are so worried about constantly meeting these goals then they're probably not going to want to make the time to help their peers out. Yeah, of course not. I mean, if you're <laughs> restricted and you've got like a certain number to hit, even if you hit it regularly without a lot of stress, just the fact that it's there like driving that stress, it'll like we talked about earlier, right? It's like a unfortunate side consequence of that particular KPI is that I don't, it is not in my interest to help my teammates. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, what kind of environment are we creating for people where it's literally not in your best interest to, to help your teammates get better, right? So I suppose as a support leader, as you try to facilitate this more, this more kind of open and environment for these more casual training, I suppose that's a combination of, you know, making sure that you have the right KPIs and that you're maybe flexible with them, mm -hmm. but also I imagine hiring the right kind of people with that right mentality. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's spot on. Um, hiring, hiring is so important. I mean, I, I just joined a startup not too long ago and, and it's just like all I'm doing these days and it's just so important to look at the attitude of the the, the people that you're hiring. A lot of people may literally have the skills, you know, the competency to do the job well. Um, but there's so much, 
there's so much to be said about uh, people who are really striving for excellence in everything that they do, even if it's just a transit transitory job, right? Like, Oh, I'm, you know, I know, I know I'm not going to do this forever. I always tell people like, just be honest with me. Like that's totally understandable and cool, right? Like it's, it's uh, for example, this might be an entry level position you're applying for. You're only really looking to be in it for like a year or two, you know, while you finish college or whatever, like that's completely fine. Just so long as like the, the trade off is you get a job and, um, you know, you can learn a bunch of skills that are going to be helpful for your your next step in your career. But in exchange for me, you know, really putting energy and effort into helping you grow and, and do really well, you know, please like come with like that winning attitude of, you know, you're going to you're going to put your all into it. You're, you're not going to, you know, um, be deterred by the office environment or, or seemingly the way things are. And you're going to push for change and try to make a positive impact you know, every day. And I think that that, that is um, a, a very fair trait and it's completely fine just to be upfront about about that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, you know, hiring for attitude, it's extremely important in making this work, right? If, if you're just going to come to work and be like, oh, you know, I'm just whatever's going to do, whatever is on the sheet, right? Like, I think there's deeper fundamental issues with motivation that I would love to talk about before we even get to any of the things we're talking about today, right? Like I think there's a, there's a, there's a, a problem there and it it's sad for me to encounter people like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I'm curious for you as a support leader throughout your career, has there been a time or two where you've come in as the leader, you've seen that the training process was not ideal, you made some changes and then saw some results from it. I'm just curious if you, like, if you've done that, how it worked, and then what your results were. Sure. One example I gave is it's a, it's a very long-term story though. So I'll just try to hit some of the, 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 sum, the summary points. Um, Training, I guess you could say training was was done in sort of a very typical and, and traditional manner that we've highlighted a few times um, during this chat. And uh, coming in to, to um, I think, uh, help, help people do this bottom-up thing a little bit um, or do this training thing a little bit differently. So one example was um, implementing uh, a whole different channel, for example. Traditionally, if we had taken um, the historic approach, people who were separate from the operations would have come in and created this whole thing, you know, massaged it like crazy, polished it, and then kind of deployed it out, you know, to the operations and it might have had various levels of success, <laughs> right? Um, but instead, if you had to summarize the breakup of the work, it was more like 10% management slash, you know, top down and 90% bottom up. And the results of that at the end of the day was the fastest adoption of a new channel, of that particular chat channel. Um, and also the fastest, I would say, speed... Speed to excellence, um, which was measured by kind of hitting the 90th, 90% kind of plus uh, satisfaction uh, ratings from customers um, on that channel. So a number of different offices had already deployed that. Um, but by the time, you know, it was our turn um, in taking that approach, and the credit really goes to, again, you know, the 90% of the work was the bottom up, the people in the actual operation doing the work, helping figure out like, hey, how do we roll out this training and this new way of interacting with customers and this new tool that we had to use better and yeah. the credit really goes to them, right? And so they did a fantastic job and got, you know, stellar results that, that were the best um, for um, you know, across across a number of different teams and a number of different global locations. Um, the other one would be a sort of similar story where um, there was a 
and this one was much harder to do. There was an initiative around trying to move away from a typical call center um, focus on, let's say, more traditional KPIs and looking towards these big behavioral buckets that we wanted people to really understand. And so it was much less about like here are rigid processes and much more about these are the general ways we want you to approach these problem sets and you can make whatever decision you think you need to, right? So instead of only best practices and you must do it this way and there's no other answer, here are some areas where we know what the best practice is. Here are other areas in which it's not about best practice, it's about good practice. So here are some general approaches that we know to be, you know, good and we understand, you know, but but the actual literal outcome can vary depending on your judgment, right? And and you're completely free to make that judgment and make that decision, you know, on the spot for the customer. And so that was a lot harder. The initial proposal was rejected by the agents themselves. And so, you know, we, we came back and we, we were working across teams and I said, well, how about this instead? How about we, we, we come back and we join forces and, and we really, we're going to send over a couple of people from the actual operation to work together with folks over at HQ to figure out how we can make this a little bit more effective. Um, you know, for the agents. And that was a very long process, but the results at the end of the day, um, we were looking at like a a long tail of improved customer satisfaction surveys. But it wasn't like an overnight thing, right? I mean, it definitely took time. And I would say that there's still some challenges in that area because again, you have kind of some conflicting systems that still exist within the team. But overall... Um, it was fairly positive for for the people who went through the program. Um, yeah, so those are those are kind of two examples. Awesome! Thanks for walking me through that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's probably a good place to kind of start wrapping us up here. But before I ask you my final question, is there anything else on our topic that um, you would like to add that we haven't covered yet? Uh, no, no, I think uh, we've had a really good conversation <laughs> on it. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Um, Okay, so kind of the last big broad question here. But generally speaking, what advice do you have for up-and-coming support leaders? Mm, um, Kind of the the, the five I I typically give if you're just starting out. um, One is that um, it's very tempting because uh, people will have, you know, best practice again, like the, the, the seemingly right answer for, for everything. Um, but if, if you oversimplify your problems, um, you're going to get the, the human outcomes wrong, right? So try not to oversimplify things. Yeah, dealing with people is, is, and behaviors is very, very complex. Um, but also at the same time, like tr- try not to over, overcomplicate things as well. Don't overengineer. Try to instead just, just focus on, I would say, the adjacent shifts that that you think the teams can make. You know, respect how hard good leadership is, um, and depending on your size, like make sure that you're moving at the appropriate speed. Two, I would say, pay attention to how all of your systems, again, your policies and procedures, etc., how they the KPIs, how they're putting pressures on your team, and what kind of behaviors it's causing. If you're in charge. Just remember that the dysfunctions that you see are most likely and, and probably at least partly your fault. So, um, <laughs> you know, pay attention to those. Pay attention to what you get mad at, etc. cetera. Uh, three, I would say keep your discussion focused on the outcomes that you want. Really try to uh, avoid micromanaging your people. Um, it, it never it never helps. I mean, I, I'm sure you've seen plenty of operations out there where they come with 10 million different rules and then no one ends up following any of them because, you know, or they just give up and be like, fine, I'm going to follow every single one of these rules and your customer experience is going to be garbage, right? So just avoid that. Uh, Four, I would say, um, it seems painfully obvious, but people forget it a lot. Your customers are the most important people to your business. Fight for them. Make sure you represent their voices in your company. Don't back down like you spend 
probably the most time at your company talking to customers, maybe besides the CEO. But like you really should, you know, um, represent them well within your company and, and stand up for their interests. That's your job. Don't lose sight of that. Um, and then lastly, um, make sure that you understand your connection to the top line business outcomes as soon as you can. Kind of what we said earlier, right? Making those business connections through data. Learn some basic statistics, basic business principles, accounting, learn how to handle data. Um, all of that's going to be super duper important to you because if there's one thing we have tons of in customer service, it's like customer data. It's just, it's everywhere, but a lot of it isn't put to great use. And um, I would say that's, you know, massive opportunities for anyone paying attention um, to, to help the business by actually understanding all of that data and feedback and uh, getting it back to your product teams. Awesome. I love that. <laughs> Some good advice. Um, all right. Well, that's all the questions I've got for you, Tony. Thank you very much again for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks, Meredith. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, it's been fun and, and it's, uh, it's, it's always an honor to, to speak to people who, um, you know, are thoughtful like yourself and, and have questions. And so thank you for having me on. Yeah. Um, if anyone listening or watching wants to learn more from you or maybe contact you, what's, what's a good way for them to do that? Cool. Yeah. Um, you know, totally uh, easy to ping me on LinkedIn. Just remember that their inbox is not designed well. So, <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of gross, but you can also go to, um, my blog at, um, morecustomers.com. It's more spelled M O A R, um, customers.com. You can um, find my email, um, and contact info there. So if you just, you know, you know, email me, um, personally, sometimes, you know, I, I, I do get busy and it might take me a few days to respond, but I, I usually try to respond as quickly as possible. So, um, you know, hit me up on any of those two channels and I'll be happy to have a conversation. That's all for this episode of Beyond the Queue. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to hit subscribe and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next time.